Welcome to this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. The guest is a special one, the president and COO of the Golden State Warriors, Rick Welts. He's a Naismith Hall of Famer and the man behind Chase Center. He also helped market the Dream Team. He was a former ball boy at the Seattle Supersonics and ended up as a Hall of Famer. Crazy, crazy career. We'll talk the Warriors, the lessons of collaboration, being an openly gay man in sports, his work with Athlete Ally, and whether his hometown Sonics will ever return to the NBA. It's great talking to Rick. Think you'll enjoy it. Without further ado, this is Rick Welts. Rick, thanks for joining me here on the Haber Show. I uh, want to start things off by giving you a, a congratulations on opening Chase Center. And I'm a year late on this, but congratulations, too, on your Hall of Fame induction following a long career with the Sonics and the NBA office and, and the Phoenix Suns as well as the Golden State Warriors. So congrats on that. Wow, that's a lot of congratulations to start. Thank you. Yes, and uh, we'll get into Athlete Ally and all of that good stuff uh, later in the show. But to kick things off, Rick, we play a little game at the top, uh, some fun trivia based on the guest's career. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So you started as a Supersonics ball boy and later became a Naismith Hall of Famer. An amazing, amazing trajectory in your career, starting out by grabbing you know, uh, rebounds and, and cleaning up after NBA players. There are eight Sonics players that have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. How many can you name? And I'm not counting Patrick Ewing or Sarunas Marshallonis, who played one season with the Sonics. I'm saying at least two years with the Sonics to play in the green and gold. Eight players inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, my gosh. You're going to make me think Sonics. Well, how many times can you count Lenny Wilkins as a player, <laughs> a coach, right? Um, yep, he's one. Jack, Ding. Jack Sigma just was uh, inducted this past year. Two, um, yeah. You're killing me. So I don't think it was G- Gary Payton. Correct. Yep, 2013 right. he was inducted after 2013. 13 seasons. No Detlef Shrimp, right? Not quite. Nope. Uh, wow, that's embarrassing. No Fred oh, Brown. No. Oh, Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson, correct. That's four. Right. How about Paul Silas? Ah, close, but mm-hmm. not in, I would say. I'll give you a hint here. Uh, one of the greatest shooters ever played five seasons uh, recently. Not recent, recent, but in the past couple decades with the Sonics. Wow. Well, since the Sonics haven't been there for a decade, now that, that makes it even more complicated. You're killing me. It's not Fred. It's not downtown Freddie Brown. No. Let's see. Played for the Miami Heat. Won a championship with them. Hit a great oh. shot against the San Antonio Spurs. Help me. Give me something. Give me Ray something. Ray Allen. Oh, of course. He was inducted in my class. Of course, Ray Allen. I think of okay. him. You're right. I think of. It was way past my Sonic days. I think of him as a Heat player. Uh, another one in 2018. He actually did play for the Seattle Supersonics, an executive in the front office, in your class, played four years, averaged 15 points a game, I think in the 60s for the Sonics. Rod Thorne. Rod Thorne. But Rod wasn't inducted as a player, right? No. He was inducted as a contributor. Still a That's dear friend. Correct. Rod Thorne, That's of course. correct. Okay. Also rounding now, out the list is Spencer Haywood. Oh, uh, Spencer, yeah. 
and David Thompson, who played two seasons, but one of which was an all-star season with Yeah, that, that one's cheating a little bit. That one I wouldn't have gotten. So now that you've totally humiliated me off the bat, <laughs> holy cow. Come on. When you were a ball boy, who were some of the players on the Sonics back in the day? Well, yeah, you mentioned one of them. My first day uh, as a 16-year-old walking in the Sonics locker room, I met Lenny Wilkins, uh, who we spoke of. I met Rod Thorne, who we spoke of. And uh, I met Tom Macheri, who actually has his number retired with the Golden State Warriors. So of the group of players that I walked into that locker room to meet, uh, those were the only three who gave me the time of day or who took the time to uh, even acknowledge my existence as a 16-year-old. And they went on to be probably the three most successful amongst that group of players that were in that locker room. So it tells you something about how you relate to people. But uh, but I can almost remember it like it was yesterday. Those would, those would be the three big names. Yeah, and, and Steve Kerr was also a ball boy back in the day, right? Like I guess for <laughs> UCLA maybe? You know, he's done everything in the world. So there's a lot of there's a lot of famous ball boys. You know, Marv Albert, there's a lot of famous ball boys out there. Well, uh I, I would I would like to spend some time on the Sonics maybe later in the podcast, but really this is about uh Chase Center and what an accomplishment for you to open uh the Chase Center this year. Probably wasn't the grand opening you were expecting or anyone was expecting this year with K D Gons. Same with Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry are in suits on the sidelines, and yet Chase Center has been sold out. must be a fascinating time to be the president of the Golden State Warriors. How has balancing the injured basketball product affected the grand opening of Chase Center and the business so far? I would say, you know, having our team healthy would be uh, a really important addition to what we've done. But I would also say that the building has been received uh, incredibly well. It's not only, remember, San Francisco's never had a world-class sports and entertainment arena in its history, which is hard to even imagine. So it's not only the basketball team, it's the 200 events a year that that we as the Warriors in owning the building will stage uh, in San Francisco that will really, really change the entertainment sports landscape of the city. So, you know, from Elton John to Metallica, the reviews from the building have been spectacular from the artists who've played there. Our players love the facilities. One of the things we did was build our practice facility uh, in Chase Center as well uh, at great expense. But that allows all of us to come to work at the same place every day, which we think is important culturally. So uh, we're all trying to find our rhythm. I think Steph Curry said it the other day. It's like everything is amazing, except I don't like have a rhythm yet on, on, on my day. And that's going to take a little while for all of us. Almost everybody had to move. Uh, almost everybody has a new place to go to work. Everybody has a new school for their kids. So it's a big adjustment, but we're we're really gratified by the reviews that the building has gotten. But we need you to come out and take a look at it and see if they're telling the truth. I've heard great reviews so far, not just about uh, you know the energy of the play, the young players playing, but also the energy in the crowd. I think that was a real concern, right? Is that you move over from one end, one side of the bay to the other, that it would feel very, very different, and not necessarily want to replicate the Oracle, but uh, find its new voice. 
And I think that from day one has been the goal. Uh, we love the home court advantage we had by playing at Oracle, but our theory has been it's had a lot more to do with the people than it had to do with the four walls. And so we designed a building that could be as uh, close and intimate to the court as it possibly could be. We reduced the capacity from 19,500 to 18,000, which might seem a little counterintuitive, but uh, we've moved one of the two levels of mid-level suites uh, down to the floor. So there's only one level of traditional suite suite separating the upper and lower bowl. Every seat's as close to the court as it was at Oracle Arena. So I, I think we did everything we could structurally to replicate that. And and maybe to our surprise, but our but our very happy surprise was that 70% of our season ticket holders that held season tickets at Oracle Arena in Oakland uh, came with us to San Francisco. So we have the majority of the people in the building are the same people that have uh, been such a big part of our success, especially over the last five years. I'm based here in Charlotte, and it's odd. Last year, they, they had Kemba Walker on the team, and they missed the playoffs. And it was kind of like this one foot in, one foot out. They had a star player, but they weren't fully committed to the youth movement. But now, obviously, with the Warriors dealing with injuries up and down the roster, it seems like a little bit more of the, the We Believe Warriors, just new faces around from someone who's just a marketing guru and someone who thinks about this all the time is, is it better to be like a juggernaut chasing championships or, you know, a young, refreshing team versus being in the middle, kind of like trying to figure out what you are? Well, probably the middle is the hardest. I think we're kind of embracing this journey we're on this year as uh, another opportunity because although they're not playing, we still have we still have Steph, Clay, and Draymond on our roster, and we picked up uh, you know another NBA All Star and D'Angelo Russell over the course of the summer as well. So uh, there is no other team in the NBA that has four All Stars on their roster. Uh, three of them just aren't playing right now. So I think. We we have no idea how this season's going to unfold. We have a lot of new pieces. Uh, you know, prior to D'Angelo coming back uh, a short time ago, we didn't have one player suited up that had played for our team the year before, which is just crazy. Uh, but the good news is they're coming back, and and depending upon what what our young players do in terms of their development, uh, it could end up being a really interesting uh, season for us. We think. What are your thoughts on Eric Pascal? Wow. Where did this guy come from, right? He, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't pass the eye test for uh, a potential star player in the NBA. He doesn't, when you see him while he's physically uh, a big guy and imposing, the, his skill level is just uh, way beyond, I think, what most of us expected to see him at this young stage of the career and being able to make his own shot, being able to be effective with a mid-range jumper as well as driving to the hoop. He's turned out to be uh, uh, potentially one of the real great steals of the NBA draft. Yeah, he's been incredible. And I think uh, I, did a, I did a story at, around draft time, Rick, about how I think the, the, the real advantage, right? I think one of the market inefficiencies in the draft where uh, teams have, it's been a blind spot for NBA front offices is that older players coming into the league are really good, really good. And I think we sometimes get uh, obsessed with the 19 year old or the 18 year old coming into the league. Of course, Luka Doncic is amazing. Uh, Jason Tatum came into the league at a similar age and and these guys are really good, obviously, and, and worth picking at the high end of the draft. But I think there's a lot of value in getting Draymond Greens and getting Eric Pascal's late in the draft because I think people just don't like the quote-unquote upside of older players, the guy who's 22, 23 coming into the league. But, man, he's NBA-ready right now. 
Yeah, I think that's a tremendous observation. We we would agree wholeheartedly. I think that the uh, you're you're going to make fewer mistakes as a as a team drafting those players too, because you have a more fully fo- formed uh, player and human being. Right? You actually have somebody who's a much more mature uh, product than somebody who's not had the experience of spending three or four years in college. So I think it's a I think it's a great box to have checked on the resume as you're taking a look at players, and and we couldn't agree with you more. And he's He's displayed not only the athletic prowess, but also kind of a, a locker room maturity that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a rookie. Has, has this season start weighed on Steve Kerr and Bob Myers in the front office? Do you do you get a sense of uh, ener- energy, a different energy, or what is it like being around the team this year compared to years past? Well, first of all, I have the privilege of working with those two guys every day to have uh, – <laughs> Steve Kerr is your coach, and to have Bob Myers as your general manager, you've hit the lottery. And I think we had a pretty optimistic view of how the season would start, and nothing has happened the way that anybody could have possibly predicted. So, you know, I, the way I would look at it, I, I do think uh, you could, you know, it was we don't like to lose. We're incredibly competitive as a group, and the way our health issues unfolded at the beginning of the year, I think was was you know. It is, is what it is. We have to make the best of it, but certainly discouraging for what we thought we were going into for the season. You know, in some crazy way, I think when Curry went down with his broken hand, uh, it almost took some of the pressure off because uh, certainly now uh, Steve could really focus on giving our younger players the opportunity to to show what they had and to get game opportunities they never would have had and really be able to learn a lot more about those players as we develop a roster later this year and and into the future. So, yeah, I think there's there's definitely disappointment because we had envisioned something very different. Uh, But at the same time, I think there's definitely the silver lining of young player development and and knowing uh, that we have uh, guys coming back that have been to the NBA Finals. I mean, when you – it's, people sometimes forget that it was it was uh, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry, and not Kevin Durant who took us to our first championship uh, in 2015. And those guys are all back, so or will be back. So I, I think we there's still a lot of optimism around, but but definitely the day to day mission has changed in terms of young player development. I was in San Francisco a few weeks ago, Rick, and I went for a run on the Embarcadero, and it's. As someone who lives in a landlocked city, it's just amazing what you guys have there. And I'm just stunned that you're able to get that space there on the waterfront. And I know there was kind of some hiccups or speed bumps along the way, but you were able to open Chase Center with private funding, 100% private funding, which is a rarity in today's uh, day and age with, with franchises. And it's such a small city. I don't think people realize this unless you've been to San Francisco that, you know, Los Angeles is 10 times the size of San Francisco. And you were supposed to find space to put an NBA team or, or an arena that not just plays an NBA team under its roof, but also an entertainment hub. You mentioned Elton John, Janet Jackson, Dave Matthews Band, Metallica. But were there moments where you thought this is not going to happen? We tried, but this is just not going to work. Well, most of those moments were around our first site. We, uh, when we initially 
eight years ago, decided to accept Mayor Lee's invitation to move the Warriors back to San Francisco. We had, he had given us the opportunity to build on Piers 3032. That's a, that's a, about a nine acre pier structure, uh, right over San Francisco, uh, San Francisco Bay. Uh, we got caught up in some political controversy about some other waterfront development, a condominium project that was, uh, proposed for that Embarcadero where you were running. And we really had decided to go to the ballot to ask voters if they wanted us to build the project there because we were really facing some some political headwinds. We didn't end up doing that because the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, called the primary owner, the, the Warriors, Joe Lakeup, and said, hey, I've got 11 acres of uh, private property in the new Mission Bay area that I have fully entitled, designed, and ready to put a shovel in the ground for Salesforce's headquarters, and I've decided it's too small. So if you would like to buy it from me, it would really get you off of the waterfront, get you on private property instead of public property. And that really made our job easier. Now, I will say even on the new site where we did end up building an opening chase center, we still had substantial political issues to deal with from people who didn't want to see the project built there. But perseverance, hundreds of community meetings, a lot of engagement with the political community of San Francisco, we we're lucky enough to be able to to build the building and, and open what I hope you'll judge to be uh, kind of the best of its class in terms of sports entertainment arenas. What's been the best show besides the Warriors that you've been to? Okay, I'm not a Metallica fan, but to open the building with two shows that were Metallica uh, with the San Francisco Symphony had real historical significance in San Francisco because 20 years ago, an album was recorded with Metallica and the Symphony that won all kinds of, uh, of Grammy Awards, and they hadn't performed together since. It's a legendary conductor named Michael Tilson Thompson who is starting his last season with the San Francisco Symphony. So to be able to bring them back together again for two shows, Open Chase Center, I think anybody who witnessed those shows thought it was uh, really a lifetime memory. Yeah, and he's played at uh, at the finals to do the national anthem, right, Metallica? Or at least what's the lead singer's name? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. They have, and I. Uh, but they did it in the round. They did it with the symphony. And just to see how you could integrate Metallica's music with a symphony orchestra was something that was pretty special. Did you go to Elton John? I went to Elton John the other night here in Charlotte, and he went three hours straight nonstop. It was incredible. No. It was awesome. Uh, we had him for two nights here. I saw one of the shows in, in its totality, one just partial. And yeah, he had he had our crowd uh, eating out of the palm of his hand. Really a special entertainer. I want to talk about your LGBTQ advocacy here. And I, I know you had a commencement speech at, at University of Washington. And you told this touching story of when you were in your mid-20s and you came out to your mother. And it was an emotional moment you described for you both. But she said to the effect... Hey, big deal. Your Uncle Bob is gay, too. Right. And that, that just blew your mind. You were talking about it in your commencement speech. And now you're the co-chair of the sixth annual Athlete Ally Action Awards. And I'm wondering how that revelation played a role in your continued activism and advocacy in the LGBT community and like thinking, man, if I had only known about Uncle Bob, maybe things would be different. Uh, good question. I think that uh, one thing that I talk about that you'll hear a lot of people in situations like mine talk about is the lack of a role model who you could 
see has succeeded uh, for me being a gay man in professional sports and there were none of those people to be found, right? There was there was no one I could look to and say, you know, if I took this step, it'll be okay because so-and-so or so-and-so has done this and uh, look how successful they've been. So, yeah, part of the strategy overall was, you know, for kids who are growing up today with a, a love of sports and, and a question about whether they can be successful because of who they are rather than in spite of who they are. That was a, a, certainly a big motivator and is to this day. I mean, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't hear from somebody in some sports organization that just wants to connect with someone who could understand their story, has been through similar things as, as they're going through. And, and I always have time for a call or an email or, or whatever that is because I know how important it could have been for me and how my life might have been taken a different path if I'd had somebody like that that, that I could look at and know that I really could succeed. And did you ever talk to Uncle Bob about it? <laughs> yes, yes. Uncle Bob was, uh, he was a doctor in San Francisco, uh, worked for the Kaiser Hospital there. And he was the coolest dude on the face of the planet. So I had traveled the world and had this amazing house in Mill Valley with a redwood tree growing in the middle of it. And uh, we did. And I think it was, it was actually for his generation was kind of a significant and important thing as well to connect with, you know, somebody in his family who would understand the experiences that he'd had through a very different time in life. You've been a big advocate for the power of diversity in the workplace and power of collaboration. And in your role as NBA Diversity and Inclusion Council and the Warriors Diversity and Inclusion Council, how far, Rick, would you say the NBA has come in your 40 plus years, however long it is, working in the NBA? And where does it still need to go? Well, I think there's no league I could be more proud of than the way our league operates. Uh, it's not a recent thing, I think, from the time that David Stern became commissioner in 1984. Um, there was a, a path set that said this league will respond to important social issues of our time and use the celebrity, that this platform that we have to try to try to do good in our community. And, uh, you know, I think that's just part of the DNA of the NBA. I, I was just actually talking to somebody about you know, one of my theories that uh, I actually think the NBA had a bit of an advantage here because our success came so far after, so so much later than either baseball or football, that when we started growing as an organization, we didn't have an incredibly successful organization populated with primarily white men. Uh, and because of that, the hiring that took place was much more mm -hmm. reflective of our society at that moment in time. And so I think we had a we had a little bit of an advantage there where the people who came into the NBA in young careers at that point in time uh, brought an energy and a diversity that just wasn't in the other leagues. And I think that uh, I think that's important. And, and I think that in terms of where from here, we have grown into perhaps uh, the most influential sports league uh, outside the United States in the world. I guess the Premier League would probably uh, argue with us about that. But, but certainly we're right there in terms of being a global game with, with, uh, with the sport of soccer. So, you know, I think you've seen over the last uh, several weeks some of the complications that can come with that. And I think we're learning as a, as a league, you know, how to navigate uh, being a global brand and doing it in a way that uh, is consistent with our values, but also promotes the game around the world. Yeah, you have a huge Asian community there in San Francisco in the Bay Area. How involved were you in the league discussions 
with how to handle the China dilemma? Uh, not at all. I mean, that was uh, something that the League Office, I think, handled as well as it could have possibly been handled, but it was in real time. I mean, there was no time for a lot of consultation by, by the commissioner or his, his senior staff. Uh, you know, I think they have uh, met with all the team presidents on a video conference to talk about the issue. They have, uh, Adam was out for our opening at Chase Center and we got to spend uh, most of one day with them and this was certainly the most important topic. Uh, but, and so subsequent to the initial uh, uh, tweet and reaction, uh, there's been a lot of communication, but in the moment, that's what leadership is about. You have to, you have to, uh, in real time, make a decision that you know is going to be judged as right or wrong, but it turns out to be a really, really important decision. Yeah, I mean, you've worked in the front office for a long time under David Stern, and just curious, how easy was it to market the Dream Team, or how difficult was it? We didn't really understand the scope of what we were uh, getting involved with. Uh, you know, the, the concept was one that we all knew had, had real potential. But I think, uh, you know, we have a funny view of these things in the United States. There was – people forget now. Everyone celebrates the Dream Team. People forget that it was fairly controversial in the United States about whether it was fair to send the best NBA players uh, – to play in the Olympics in Barcelona in 1992. There's American, there's this crazy American sense of fair play that was almost, uh, that was almost a negative around the dream team in the United States when we started. Now the rest of the world, completely different, right? Uh, the rest of the world, this is the, this is the greatest group of individual athletes. I think they'll ever be assembled uh, on one team for an Olympics. And that's what the rest of the world saw. And I say all the time, I think that two weeks in Barcelona, moved the NBA's agenda ahead 20 years in terms of, of, of international uh, popularity and in terms of interest in the game by young international players who now represent such a significant part of the talent pool in our league. So I think when the whole history of basketball is written, there's, never, there's not going to be anything more significant than what the Dream Team did in Barcelona in 1992. Did you come up with the Dream Team name? No, it was uh, it was. I don't know why this story doesn't get told more. It it was actually had, had nothing. We had nothing to do with it. We had secretly shot a uh, sports. No, you're supposed illust- to take ownership of all those things. <laughs> only things. Only that. only things that I own. We had done a secret photo shoot at the uh, All Star Game, and it included Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan. I think that's that was the group. Did I say Barkley? If I didn't say Barkley, it was Barkley mm-hmm. too. And and uh, Sports Illustrated. That was Sports Illustrated's uh, cover. And some you know some copywriter at Sports Illustrated decided to make the headline on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Look out, world! This could be America's dream team. And from that day forward, it stuck immediately. And uh, uh, forevermore, that'll be known as the dream team. Yeah, I think for fans around the world, uh, basketball is such a perfect sport because it's transparent. Like, there's no face masks. There's no, yep. you know, when when Mike Trout steps to the batter's box, he's wearing a helmet and maybe covering his face, and you're 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 not up close and personal. In basketball, the dream team. How much do you think just the fact that there's Michael Jordan wearing a jersey with no headgear and he's just out there? How much do you think the transparency of the sport just how authentic it is. You can see everything on their face and you can see Michael Jordan sticking out his tongue on every play. In other sports, you just don't have that. How important is that at the very basis of marketing the NBA is the fact that it's just so intimate? 
Yeah, I think uh, it's so, so important. And uh, it's not only what they're wearing, but it's how the game is covered on television, right? Which which allows you to see so much more of the motions and uh, physical attributes of a player than you see in, in any other sport. And uh, you combine that with Dick Ebersole's influence over the NBA and the NBC coverage of uh, the NBA on NBC, and and he was the one who convinced us that it was okay not always to call it the Boston Celtics versus the Los Angeles Lakers. It really was going to be okay. It might even be to our benefit if it was Larry Bird against Magic Johnson, and that was a huge sea change in the way we had promoted the sport in the past, and that it was it not only was okay, it was like the smart thing to do to make the players these bigger-than-life characters in this drama that would unfold every week on NBC. And, and that, you know, the combination of what they were wearing, the combination of kind of embracing this idea that the players were the thing, and not necessarily just those team logos were the thing. I think uh, combined to make the NBA through, you know, those 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 Magic Johnson, Larry Bird years, and then in the '90s with with Michael Jordan, uh, when the sport really exploded in popularity and on television. That those are the, those are big factors in that happening. Right, because I think that that whole team above player uh, marketing just seems like a NFL or a college sports mentality, right? It's definitely a um, sea change from from that mentality where there's just more ingrained historically. Your 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 grandparents rooted for this team, your your father rooted for this team. Where in the NBA, it seems more than ever, you know, market around its stars. Yeah. Absolutely. They, you know, only five players on the floor at any one time, right? So one player's influence over the outcome of a game is is disproportionate to what it can be in any of the other leagues. So there is kind of like a, a back, not a backfire, but a downside to that is when guys like Kawhi Leonard or Steph Curry, uh, not this season, but in year, years past, when they need to sit out for rest because of a back-to-back how should the NBA handle that? It's a huge issue now, but in your eyes with the Warriors and your experience in the NBA, is this a unique thing that uh, the league is facing right now with load, load management? Well, it's certainly the topic du jour. And I you know, listen, we have a lot of really smart people thinking about what possible solutions are. And one thing I will tell you that is uh, on close to the top of my list in terms of why Adam Silver has been so effective in his time as commissioner is – there's really an embracing uh, of ideas that come from all over the place. Uh, that hasn't, I would say, always been the style in the commissioner's office. And I think Adam actually not only embraces it, but encourages it. And the way he conducts himself and his interaction with the team is encouraging ideas on how we can solve uh things that are important to the NBA. And this is, you know, this is one of them. He's taken a lot of input from a lot of people. We've had a lot of discussions internally about things that could change related to the season. And, he, you know, when we land on something that we can really get a consensus on, I think Adam is going to be willing to try it. But this, listen, we want we want fans who pay good money to see the players play and we want players to be healthy. So we have, just have to, you know, and Adam will, you know, find uh, the right path to make both of those things happen. Yeah, a couple of years ago when Steve sat, you know, Clay and, and Steph and Draymond on a back-to-back, and it was a big, high-profile game, I remember talking to him about it, and he's like, my hands are tied. I mean, we just – we had a crazy – it was some crazy thing, like seven games in 11 days, three, four different time zones, and he had to sit his guys to, you know, protect them and prevent injury. And, and 
you guys are going for a championship every year. So do those conversations move over to the business side? Because obviously you marketing the games with Kawhi Leonard's face versus Steph Curry's face, it does kind of bring into your department under the business side and marketing side. Yeah, but I, there's a that's actually a perfect example of some things we could do to make adjustments. So the league over the last four years has done a amazing job in retooling the existing schedule so that the number of back-to-backs we there is no team that has a stretch today like that stretch that we had that caused those players to have to be arrested by coach kerr that doesn't exist in our schedule today for any of the 30 teams and there's you know an example that it would be really hard for fans to see that where the, the league recognized that yeah that was a really bad thing uh for fans but it also we created the situation by uh, putting together a schedule where uh, the wear and tear on those players was just, you know, uh, it, it was beyond what anybody could expect to have them perform in that game. So there's a perfect example of how there are ways to solve some of these problems through more, you know, systematic business practices that yield a better schedule, that yield fewer of those chances and opportunities where players are in that situation. Yeah, I think the the topic of star health or star eligibility or star playing is at the forefront of the, uh, you know, just sports fans in general, watching Sports Center or flipping on their their Twitter and seeing the news cycle. Recently, there were projected number one picks in both college football uh, and college basketball who are facing eligibility concerns. And I, I think about this a lot with the NBA is, what does it mean for the G League when we, we have a minor league system in place with the affiliate Santa Cruz Warriors there for you guys? But what would... What does the NBA landscape, the talent pool, look like in five years? Uh, does the age limit need to go to 18? And from the business perspective, why does the NBA let players go to the NCAA and make money for, for their respective programs, not earn money for, the, for themselves? Should the NBA lower the age limit? And would that be good for, say, Santa Cruz and the, and the G League that you're overseeing too? Yeah, again, something that's so much time and energy. There's so many stakeholders that are colliding right now that whatever college, G League, NBA looks like uh, 10 years from now is going to be very different, I think, than what it looks like today because you have the very important interests of the colleges themselves. You have the, the business interests of the NBA and the G League. You have the athletes who are in maybe in more of a position of influence today than they have been historically in terms of how the system develops. But we've got a long way to go before anybody's smart enough to predict exactly how that's going to look like, uh, you know, 10 years from now for sure, maybe even seven or eight years from now, because the whole sport, I think, is really going through a reexamination, and there's a lot of forces at work that are colliding right now. And the system we come out of it with, again, won't look like the system we have now, but I wish I was smart enough to tell you what that system's going to be. Yeah, I just feel bad for these guys. I mean, the football player, I don't know much about college football player, but he tried to fly out uh, his girlfriend to go watch him play in, in the bowl game. And it was a loan. It wasn't even that he accepted money. He paid it back, and he's still he's, he's going to be the number one picker in the conversation for it. And it just seems like even though we've come so far with uh, civil rights and human rights for, for athletes in America, it just seems like we have another level to go. We've got a ways to go. It's Peter King, host of the aptly named Peter King Podcast, dropping every Wednesday. I chat with big football people. 
Now I've added a second mini-pod dropping Monday mornings, capsulizing my Football Morning in America column. Listen. So going back to your Seattle roots last year, you had a preseason game with the Kings at, at Key Arena, and you were, uh, you were noticing that there was a lot of We Got Next t-shirts. Do you think Seattle <laughs> will get its team back in the next five years or so? I sure hope so. If there's one thing I could wish uh, for our league structurally, I think it would be to get a team back to uh, Seattle. That's obviously a really personal issue for me. I, uh, I know what that team meant to that city at the time it was there, bringing the first professional championship to, uh, to Seattle that it had ever experienced. And... Uh, you know, it's an amazing market. Uh, a lot of the future of the world is being uh, envisioned there. It's It's got a vibrant uh, community that would really support an NBA team coming back. But the path is problematic, right? Uh, the good news is the NBA's business is really successful right now. And that means we have 30 teams operating without anyone feeling like they're in a market where they can't support NBA basketball. And the owners, and I I would say probably to their credit, have shown no interest uh, and the league hasn't really promoted any expansion agenda. So how do you get a team there? And I th- I would I don't think I'm going out on a limb to make the prediction that uh, the next team, uh, the next new market in the NBA will be Seattle. But the path on how we get there is pretty murky right now. Yeah, isn't Key Arena getting a renovation? Was wouldn't that be part of the deal? Is that uh, Key Arena has to be a, a, a cutting edge arena in order for NBA team to go there? Well, it is, but it's complicated, right? Because that is uh, there are two parties involved in the construction of that arena that have to make the economics work, and neither one of them happens to be an NBA team. There's a there's a hockey team, and there's a stadium construction company, uh, an operating company that that are investing probably close to a billion dollars to renovate and exist the existing key arena into a new hockey facility today. And the question becomes, you know, on on economic return, is there enough room there for an NBA team to enter that market and have the kind of economics that an NBA team would need uh, on top of the fair interests of the hockey team and the interests of the people who invested that money to build that stadium. So maybe is the answer. Mm. Uh, I think that's something that that we haven't figured out yet because there hasn't really been a a real opportunity to flush through like what it would take to make the economics of a team there uh, be as successful as they would need to be for the league to place a team there. Yeah, I I think you were with the Suns when that was uh, when that was happening, right? The Thunder becoming a thing. Yep. What was that like for you? I mean, it must have been oh. like, hey, we can't let this happen. Like, please do not. <laughs> no, no. This is like, when was the moment you realized, wait, the Sonics are going to leave? Why? Oh, my gosh. You're just like, a, I feel like you're putting daggers in my back. It's like, it was such a, it was such a painful thing because I'm, I, you know, I'm still so close to so many of the people that were a part of the Sonics back then. We still do reunions every summer. We still, you know, all talk about when the team, you know, we get a team back in Seattle. It was a terrible. It was a terrible intersection of, of uh, events that caused the team to move, and, and none of them really had to do with the health and vitality of the Seattle market. 
and it is what it is. We have to deal with it. But yeah, it's a, you know, if you go to Seattle today, you can you can still see Seattle Sonics merchandise in stores, and you still hear people talking about the glory years of the Sonics, and you know whether it was that championship team or or Gary Payton leading the Sonics to against Michael Jordan and the Bulls in the finals, whatever whatever it is, it has a great the NBA has a great legacy there that I hope we can recapture again sometime. How would you describe? the experience of Bay Area fans from the Oakland side. I know you mentioned 70% are, have, have come over with the new team, with the new arena. But how would you describe the early le- lessons of, hey, we didn't foresee this happening with opening uh, a te- the, the Warriors here on, on the San Francisco side, but what are some of the things, both positive and negative, that you're learning through right now as we speak? Well, as it relates to Oakland, I mean, we love Oakland, and we're going to have a very, very big presence uh, in Oakland going forward. Just a couple of quick things on that. I mean, we we actually are keeping our downtown Oakland practice and business facility uh, and repurposing it as a community benefit. So the, the playing courts that we used as our practice facility uh, will teach more kids how to play basketball than, than any other team in the NBA has ever done. The business offices are being repurposed for not-for-profits that fall in line with the mission of the Warriors Community Foundation. We're providing office space, collaboration space for these not-for-profits who are working toward improving the educational and career outcomes of kids. And that's there, and we've committed to that. That's pretty extraordinary. You know, Oakland's going through a really difficult time. In some ways, the city has uh, progressed so much. You see more cranes and construction going on in Oakland now than than maybe any time in the past. At the same time, there's very serious problems. And, you know, I don't think the Warriors or anyone else expected the city uh, to bail us out from a financial perspective in building a new arena. The we, While we love Oracle, it was the oldest, most people don't realize it was the oldest arena in the NBA. It was built before Madison Square Garden was built. And as much as the atmosphere when you were in the bowl was wonderful, it was not a place you could build uh, the future, Put a fa- you couldn't make it the foundation of a franchise that wanted to be successful year in and year out over the next 30 years. It just, it, it wasn't that building. And we had to go, we had to go find that building. We had to go build that building. And unfortunately, you know, with the Raider situation, with the Warrior situation, with the A situation, at least in flux, uh, it's a really difficult time. And, and we love Oakland and Oakland will always be a big part of what we do. We we're hanging, we've hung our Oakland 47 for the 47 years we played there. That banner in, in Chase Center, we're wearing Wearing our town jerseys, everyone in Oakland calls uh, Oakland the town, and we're wearing those jerseys in San Francisco this year. So it's always a part of it, but there's a there's a heartbreaking part of it too that we all feel because of how much we love Oakland and what Oakland has meant in the history of the Warriors. It seems like the partnership between you know Oakland and, and San Francisco has gone as as well as you could have hoped. And I, I I think about this all the time with arenas. I, I want I want to remind people Cameron Indoor in uh, for the Duke Blue Devils is such an amazing experience because of how small it is and it feels like a, a high school gym. And I, I wonder, you, you guys could have had a huge arena that, that sat, you know, 20,000 plus, but you chose to lower the, the capacity uh, to 18,000. Can you walk me through the decision to, to do that? And, you know, should NB, is there a sweet spot that you, you think about? Is, is, should it be 10,000, 15,000 for, for an NBA experience? 
Well, obviously, we think eighteen thousand is the the best number that allow. <laughs> no, we do that, but it, it, part of it's on the economics, right? We want to make sure we have seats available at prices that people can afford to uh, to to come to games. And the smaller you make the arena, there's this whole supply and demand thing. The the, the more expensive tickets would get, and so even though I used to toy a lot when I was at the NBA on ideas of could we ever make this work with a 5,000 or a 10,000 seat arena. It's hard to figure out how to make that a affordable opportunity for people to actually attend games. And we think attending games is such a huge part of creating the atmosphere of NBA basketball and how that translates on television that we need a excited, engaged, enthused crowd to make it as great a uh, not only a live experience, but also as great a television property as it possible could ever be. So we, th- we think we hit the number. The number, I'm sure, will change over time. There was a time we were building arenas with over 20,000 seats in Charlotte, by the way, where you are. And, you know, we learn from how the sport evolves. We learn how fans evolve. We learn how the live experience evolves. But we're, we're pretty happy with the 18,000 seats we have. Yeah, here in Charlotte, they're, they're always talking about, hey, you know, we, we might have lost Kemba, but people forget that the Golden State Warriors weren't the Golden State Warriors uh, you know, 10 years ago, they were, they were not what we think of today. You know, they were going through really tough season, 29 win season, 26 win season with Don Nelson and then transitioning with Key Smart and Mark Jackson. It, it wasn't what we think of it is today. And so it speaks <laughs> to, you know, Charlotte really thinks bottoming out here and having a, a rebuilding season isn't the worst thing in the world. And, and it's just kind of the life cycle of, of NBA fans. But when you came when you came to the Warriors, what kind of culture did you enter into and how much did your your son's experience uh, influence and just the idea of collaboration doesn't seem like a very macho thing to do is to say, hey, let's get everyone uh, included in these conversations and let's not try to think that one person knows everything. Well, you're on to something we think is a huge part of building a successful culture with an NBA team. You, you actually mentioned the only two teams, uh, and I think this is true, in the NBA right now where their practice facilities are part of their uh, arena facilities. And we do that for a reason. We want our business office employees and our basketball employees to show up for the same place of work every day, not just when games are played. They get together and play the game and then go back to their respective camps. We want we want to win together. We want to lose together. We want to experience it together. And we want people on the basketball side to feel fully invested in the business, people on the business side to be uh, fully invested in basketball. And we think having them in the same location is really important. So I think culturally that was really important at the Warriors. Uh, when we got there, we just had a culture of losing. When Joe Lacob and Peter Guber bought the team, the Warriors had missed the playoffs 16 out of 17 years. Let me say that again. 16 out of 17 years in a league where more than half the teams make the playoffs each season. That's like an impossible plan to execute, okay? Uh, and we didn't make the playoffs the first year of their ownership either. So there should be hope out there for anybody who's trying to put together the type of organization uh, that is committed to winning, is committed to doing whatever it takes to to build an organization that can have sustained success at that point in time where the team gives you a reason for fans really, really to start caring. And that's that's what I think we did. We got we spent years preparing. Uh, but then when it happened, we were able to, to take it from, you know, zero to 60 a lot faster than if we'd said, holy cow, we got a new opportunity here. We ought to think about how we take advantage of it. 
And how important is uh, a guy named Steph, Stephen Curry to that to that rise? Well, I do also always say this, that if you're considering uh, buying an NBA team, I would uh, suggest that you buy one that already has Steph Curry on the roster. Because <laughs> your chances for success have yes. been greatly, greatly enhanced. Now, in all fairness, when Goober and Laka bought the, the Warriors, Steph Curry wasn't Steph Curry. But, uh, but Steph Curry was on the roster of the team that they purchased. So this guy is everything you see and then some. It's just, I think, every day you pinch yourself and say it's such a privilege to work around somebody who is an amazing father, is an amazing husband, is an amazing son, is an amazing community advocate, and it's all for real and done in such a humble way that it doesn't even seem like it's possible that all those attributes could be rolled up in one professional athlete who, you know, has the opportunity to to have the world be his oyster. And he's chosen to do it in a way that I think uh, it, it reflects just incredibly well on him, on his parenting, on, on his personal uh, beliefs and how he conducts himself every day. So, uh, there's only one of them. I wish there were a lot more, but but we're really fortunate that he's played his whole career for us. Yeah, we had recently on this show his personal trainer and longtime friend of the last decade, Brandon Payne, who talked about how he's a real collaborator. Like, he doesn't want to be the guy who gets 100 pick and rolls every game. He wants to play off the ball. He wants to see his uh, teammates succeed. In terms of culture setters, how important is that? Is just a guy who, yes, he wants to be the best in the world, but also wants to see others succeed with him. Well, I think you just defined exactly the way the Warriors have had success, especially over the last five years, is that's exactly how the team has played. So to have your best player and, uh, you know, maybe not your most vocal leader, but but the leader, because of what he does, conduct himself that way every day is a huge advantage for Steve Kerr or any coach trying to put together a team that really believes that moving the ball and, and being unselfish and getting a better shot instead of the shot that you have uh, and playing defense, all those things combined. And he's he epitomizes that as as who he is as a person and who he is as a player. Well, Rick, thanks so much for joining me uh, on the Haber Show. Uh, I'm sorry I, I talked so much about the, the Seattle Supersonics, <laughs> but I do think that that passion, Rick, that passion is what's going to drive the movement to get a team. I know it's, there's, there's more political powers that need to uh, need to let that happen, but. Man, um, I don't think people quite understand outside of Seattle what that team meant to, to people like you. Well, that'll be a really, really happy day for me when that happens and a really amazing day for the Seattle community. Well, congratulations on all your success, uh, especially with Athlete Ally and, and, and Chase Center and the Warriors um, and everything in your career and, and Naismith Hall of Fame. Very, very great to, to take some time with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to thank Rick Welts for joining me on the show, taking the time out to go talk about, man, what a career he's had. Um, So if you like this, go tell your friends, go tell your family, go tell your neighbors. Even if you don't like them, it'll help. Subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time on the Haber Show.